How's it going? Welcome back to the Manufacturing Come Up. I'm your host, Malachi Greb. And if you don't know who we are, we do all things automation, manufacturing. We're an automation company at heart, but for our podcast and our social platforms, we're educating people on their careers. So uh, the Manufacturing Come Up is a place for if you're looking to learn about career advice, then you want to hit that uh, subscribe button, that notification bell, what all the creators are talking about. Um, and, and for just anything else related to, to manufacturing and automation, we're a hub for that. And we have another guest who falls in alignment with that. And uh, I would like to welcome Amalok. Hello. I uh, know it's great. So hi, my name is Amalok uh, and um, uh, CEO, co-founder at Orbital Composites. And Maliki, uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I think this is a wonderful effort to uh, educate uh, the next generation of uh, manufacturing uh, superstars. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. And I'm hoping I'm hoping to catch uh, a bunch of valuable pointers from you today and uh, be able to share that back with the community. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess if you wouldn't mind starting off, like where are you currently at in, in, in your career? Obviously, you're the CEO of a company, which uh, is something that, you know, I think is very inspirational from the get go. Um, tell us a little bit about what you have going on. Sure. Uh, so I, I feel like I'm really one of the most privileged people uh, to be in this position of leading an incredible company, uh, Orbital Composites. And our mission is to democratize advanced composites manufacturing uh, with the use of robotics. And we do this all the way from mesoscale to megascale. And this in impacts the most advanced uh, industries and products uh, in the world, uh, starting from, you know, the largest structures that we know of, like massive wind turbine blades or the fastest structures we know, like F-35 aircraft, or the hottest structures like a rocket nozzle. Uh, all of these things are made with composites. And uh, so, but making that manufacturing process uh, easy, fast, automated, uh, so that uh, it can be applied to a large variety of applications. And then our, really our long-term mission is to take this core technology and also put that in space. We're also one of the leading contenders in uh, this emerging area of in-space manufacturing for space. So you can build massive structures in space without having to launch them. And uh, that can lead to incredible cost reductions to the order of 100 to 1000 X. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, then you can change the, the shape at which you're shipping things and, and then develop whatever the structure needs to look like out in space. You know, it turns out it's the same problem even for terrestrial applications, right? Uh, anytime we need to make something big, rather than making it in a factory somewhere, making it over there where you need it, uh, you can significantly uh, reduce the, uh, the cost and uh, even the risk of transporting these things. Uh, and so, you know, for terrestrial applications like wind turbine blades, an interesting example, they're becoming so large that we don't have roads uh, big enough or our highway underpasses tall enough to ship these blades where they need to go. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, it's very important to think about how do we make these things on site, similar to how construction works, but do that for advanced composites. Um, and so it really is 
the space and terrestrial application is the same challenge. Uh, what that means is you need more and more automation, robotics, uh, and uh, uh, advanced software, uh, advanced sensors uh, that allow you to autonomously do these things as much as possible. Uh, and, uh, and then so the people who are operating these system, systems are uh, uh, really looking, uh, becoming very, very efficient at building these uh, incredible structures. Uh, today, a lot of these jobs are going offshore because they're uh, very manual jobs and uh, uh, companies chase low cost of labor. So if we really want to bring these jobs back to the U.S., we have to strongly invest in this type of uh, automation. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think another really cool thing that we kind of briefly talked about off camera was the career fields that are going to open up in space, right? And and manufacturing in space. I, you know, like whenever we whenever that got brought up in conversation, it's like, wow, like that one is one that I can see that like contends with like AI. Like there's a few there's a few things out there that I think are gonna really disrupt and like take over majority of like maybe eighty percent of jobs um, in the next you know twenty to hundred years maybe twenty to fifty years um, AI is one of them but I think space is gonna be a huge one uh, manufacturing in space and um, it's I think it's gonna open up a ton of different career opportunities that that are some of the similar things that we're doing here but i think there may be a lot more science that's going to go behind it there's going to be a lot more logistical challenges uh and how we get procurements to to different locations in space um and i think definitely this additive manufacturing um adds it's one of the catalysts to, to be able to help facilitate that yeah we're i mean as the name of the company suggests right uh, our north star is orbital manufacturing and, uh, uh, and the interesting thing is that, so the space industry is really going through this uh, second renaissance, right? So we had our golden period of the Apollo era, where we made incredible gains in, in our capabilities of how far we could go and going all the way to the moon. And, uh, and then kind of lost that a bit over time. Uh, but now that has come back strong because uh, space is sort of the next big uh, uh, trillion dollar industry that, uh, that uh, provides uh, tremendous opportunities for, uh, for the United States, but also the rest of the world. And so if you think about, you know, uh, re in the recent uh, years, uh, reusable rockets uh, have sort of opened up the door uh, for in-space manufacturing, uh, you know, access to space, right? But, but I think people need to realize that that's just a first stepping stone, right? You're still limited by how much you can fit inside that rocket body, right? And, and I use this example, uh, you know, imagine the forefathers, you know, moving to the US, right? And said, we want to settle here, but we want to keep going back and forth uh, from Europe to bring everything, right? That's just not sustainable. So if you really truly believe in, uh, you know, humans becoming spacefaring civilization and actually having hundreds of thousands of people working in space, you have to learn how to make things over there. And actually, 
you will be able to make incredibly large structures uh, uh, and at dramatically lower costs uh, than what's uh, done to date. So it's a very exciting field. We believe it's the next big thing since uh, reusable rockets, right? This is the next big technology jump that will take us from, you know, so something to the order of 40x cost reduction to like 100 to 1000x cost reduction. And what that means is a lot of the dirty industries that we have on Earth, you know, you have the potential to actually put them in orbit uh, so that you create less pollution on Earth uh, and you're able to uh, move a lot of the heavy manufacturing jobs up there. Uh, so, and this is why we, we are building our uh, machines, our robotic systems uh, that are from day one designed to work on Earth, but also in space. So today you could go out, start working with these systems, get comfortable with them, get trained on them, and you're basically future-proofing yourself by doing that because as these new space opportunities open up, you know, you're ready already. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure like, you know, all the details that would go into like, how do you, how do you have a manufacturing facility in space or potentially in, in earth's orbit, but I can hundred percent, you know, see, see a world, uh, where that that is the future or or if not in orbit that it's somewhere like right outside of our orbit and, and kind of just floating around out there in space so that is already happening right so if you uh, uh i think most people are familiar with the international space station mm -hmm. uh, which has been sort of these multi-country collaboration over the years now it was built sort of one of a kind so it's incredibly expensive and not really scalable but what's changing now is that NASA is saying, you know what, we've demonstrated that this can happen. Let's pass this on to private companies. Uh, so there are actually several companies, uh, some companies like Axiom Space, uh, uh, Orbital Reef from Blue Origin. Uh, there is a Lockheed Martin space station being considered. Uh, there is one from Northrop Grumman and even another company called Vast just announced one. Uh, and there's many others actually. Uh, so you have a lot of private industry interest in building these floating platforms uh, in space, uh, mostly in low Earth orbit, which is the nearest to Earth. And, uh, and they're actually actively looking for applications. You know, If we had such a platform, so Orbital's goal is not to go build that platform. Uh, there's companies already working on that. Uh, our goal is to go and then figure out how to take advantage of these platforms and start building the space infrastructure at, again, 100x or more lower cost than what it took traditionally. So if we could build these platforms at such lower cost, then you can build out much more and that's the first step. You know, it's like, you know, uh, as people moved from east to west in the US, right? We had to have railroads, right? That was the uh, important infrastructure step. And once you had railroads, then you had this mass migration, the gold rush, right? So the space, you can really think of it as the kind of the next big gold rush uh, where people that are risk takers, that are, you know, 
that are innovative, that are just, or they just want to do something crazy, you know, they're going to be attracted to these type of things. Uh-huh. And we are building the tools uh, uh, that are useful here on earth, but also then you can go potentially uh, in one of these big stations and you could be manufacturing some really advanced things uh, uh, that are actually better to be made in space than here on earth. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like, really like the future of our planet, like it should be in our mind to, you know, try to get as much as possible uh, manufacturing wise, especially anything that's not, um, you know, eco-friendly, we remove it from the planet. So that way, you know, we can leave this planet to be a very fruitful and very um, just luscious planet to, to live on. Absolutely. So if you look at our industrial revolutions, right, uh, it's built on a consumption model, which is that, you know, we are using resources that are uh, constrained. They're finite, right? And, and then, and, which is what's creating a lot of these challenges that we're facing uh, over time. Now, in space, not only we can move a lot of our heavy industries where you can reduce the impact of uh, pollution. See, one of the other interesting thing is space forces you to be efficient. It forces you to reuse and not waste, right? You, you know, you don't want to go be creating, you know, going on the lunar surface and creating garbage because if you do, actually, actually will create more problems, right? So. The fourth, the space environment is extreme. So it forces you to solve these difficult problems of being uh, circular, not wasting anything, right? Uh, I mean, they have to, uh, it's kind of gross, but they have to drink their own pee, right? NASA had to invent, <laughs> it's expensive to send water up there. So they invented the technology to recycle, right? Uh, so there's actually tremendous advantages in, in, in doing this since all these technologies come back to Earth. Uh, and, uh, and then it's also inspirational. I think uh, I've had the privilege to talk to a few different astronauts and almost all of them say the same thing that, you know, when you're up there and you look back on Earth, it's very humbling uh, because you, you see this sort of vastness of blank dark space and then you see this one sort of little blue dot right and it it brings you back to really appreciating you know it's actually a miracle that we have this planet right uh it is a miracle if you uh, you know understand the formation of earth and so on right it is a miracle and so uh anything we can do to uh make it thrive uh, and so space so the other big challenge on earth is uh, finite resources especially you know when you start thinking about rare earth materials right and and a lot of conflict and wars happen because we're chasing these finite commodities right but see if you start looking around uh, in, in in space there's actually plenty of these materials out there uh, in the form of different asteroids, right? Uh, and, and this concept has been there for some time, this concept of asteroid mining, where you can go uh, go onto some rock, which is, I mean, 
Uh, for example, let's talk about batteries, right? Uh, there's a, this big shift going on to electrification. Uh, everything needs batteries, uh, and then batteries requires lithium and other rare earth materials, which are uh, kind of hard to mine. And uh, again, there's this sort of conflicts emerging because of it, right? But you go in space, they're available in abundance. Abundance, there's no shortage. So it's actually really worthwhile as, again, as society to go figure out how to go get those materials. These ideas are not new. What has changed is the technologies are now matured enough that uh, this is the second golden age of space. And, you know, these things are going to be possible. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take this thing back just a little bit. What what got you involved in, in being so interested in space? Uh, so my story is interesting. Uh, you know, I spent... Uh, about 18 years in the uh, high-tech industry here in Silicon Valley, uh, but on the semiconductor side. And I was very privileged that my first job was at a company called Agilent Technologies. But this company was really, uh, uh, came out of the original Hewlett Packard. And a lot of people may not know, Hewlett Packard is one of those foundational Silicon Valley companies. Uh, they really wrote the history of Silicon Valley uh, originally, not today's Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley used to be actually really deep tech, hardware-focused uh, uh, place where a lot of magic happened. So I was privileged, you know, people around me, I was surrounded by incredible people who grew up in the original Hewlett Packard. And, and, and so my way of thinking there's a wonderful book called the hp way written by uh, uh david packard uh, bill hewlett david packard by the way used to be uh, uh u.s uh, uh head of uh, defense minister of defense uh, uh in the 80s uh, so he, he was quite influential in his career uh, i learned a lot from them uh, how do you build an enduring company? How do you build something which is really next, not just a little bit further ahead than somebody else, but, you know, uh, we used to use the word 10 dB, uh, you know, orders of magnitude ahead. Uh, so I was grounded with that and had a great opportunity over, over the years between uh, Agilent, uh, Avago Technologies, which is a spin out of Agilent, uh, which ultimately became Broadcom. And uh, I was fortunate to have be friends with uh, what, what in our industry we call tech fellows. And I knew four or five of them really well. And uh, after about 18 years in this industry, I'd done everything. I built R&D teams, built sales teams, marketing teams, took new products to market, operations, strategy, M&A, kind of went, did the entire circle. Uh, but really wanted to be a, do a startup always. Because I'm like, you know, you're in Silicon Valley. You, you have to do a startup, right? Like, that's the thing to do here, right? Uh, and uh, I actually dabbled into investing. Uh, I became a member of a, a group called Sandhill Angels, which is a, a fairly active uh, angel investor group uh, here in the Valley. Uh, and then eventually met uh, the founder of Orbital. Uh, his name is Cole Nielsen. 
And uh, we met, our kids went to the same school, That's, <laughs> and we started talking. First time I talked to him, I did not understand anything. Uh, he went just way over my head. Uh, but, you know, I, I had a feeling, you know, this, he reminds me of these tech fellows I know in my industry, the way he thinks, the way he analyzes things, the way he executes and all, all of that. So I was fascinated by him. And I just started spending a lot of time with him. And uh, I became one of the early investors in Orbital. Uh, but I just, for a couple of years, I just hung out with him. I, I just, I learned so much. I, I became really hungry. The, the more I would talk to him, the more I'm curious. Uh, so that is what really pulled me in. Uh, and as I started uh, spending time with him, uh, even you know, talking to some some of the customers, I started to realize he's onto something really big. I may not understand all of it, but he's onto something really big. Uh, and the more, I, so I officially joined in 2018, um, and since then we've made incredible progress. You know, we we count U.S. Navy, Air Force, Space Force all as our customers, and we will have Army as a customer pretty soon. And we have a number of tremendous uh, tier one aerospace and energy companies uh, as customers as well. We work really well with uh, the national labs, the US national labs like Oak Ridge National Lab, uh, National Renewable Energy Lab, uh, as well as Sandia National Labs. Uh, so we have uh, spent these last few years develop and cultivate these relationships. And, uh, uh, and in this process, I've really become uh, uh, incredibly excited about this opportunity to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. Uh, and uh, uh, so it's I'm, I'm, every day I wake up, I learn something new, and and it's also very gratifying to be working with customers who and and solve some of these really difficult problems with robotics composites automation yeah absolutely what are you glad that you made the shift i am i have learned so much in the last five years <laughs> the rate of learning is incredible uh and yes absolutely uh but you know i would be lying if i said you know the the, the startup world is difficult hmm. especially when it comes to hardware especially when it comes to advanced manufacturing and uh you know, you, you go through your usual, you know, days, there is ups and downs, but, you know, I like to think about things in longer term trajectories mm -hmm. and every six months we look back and we, and see what we have accomplished. Uh, it is incredibly gratifying. Um, and, uh, because we know we're having an impact, mm -hmm. uh, we're having a pretty large impact. Uh, and the technologies that we're developing are going to be enduring, you know, the HP way, right? These things are going to last because that's how advanced they are. That's the kind of impact they're having. Right. Absolutely. What, it, what do you think it is that, uh, gave you the ability to, to make this shift or feel confident to make the shift into a, to a newer industry? That's a great question. Um, I think anybody making such a drastic shift uh, from a, into a completely different industry, this can be very scary, but I think you have to 
leave your um, people struggle with this because they worked so hard to reach a certain level in their previous career and the lateral shifts are very difficult um, uh, you have to be willing to start from the bottom again it requires hard work um, but that's you know in my life, I've moved around so much. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm very comfortable with change. I think it's a change that people are, uh, uh, it's difficult uh, for, for people to make those, but change is constant, right? And the change is accelerating uh, because of emergence of all these technologies. So I think uh, number one, always be hungry for learning and be open to it. Second, stay grounded, you know, don't, don't think about, well, I used to be this big shot <laughs> in this industry. Be willing to start again. It's okay. You will actually be surprised how quickly you can start climbing again if you put in the time. Because there are many skills that are transferable. You have to learn the domain. You have to learn the specifics of, you know, what that domain is about. But as an experienced professional, you know, there's many skills you will be able to translate, but you have to be willing to be humble and start again. Because, you know, you're going to meet a bunch of young people that may be way better than you and, and you're starting again from, and I, it can feel very intimidating, right? But again, I encourage people to be uh, lifelong learners. And, and if you just have that open mindset, growth mindset, uh, you can overcome all of these uh, uh, transitions and they can be wonderful. They can be incredibly gratifying uh, because uh, you could actually, you know, get back into that zone. We all remember our early careers when we get into something, we're so excited about it because we're learning, right? That's part of the excitement. Uh, so it's it's all about your perspective, right? Prior to Shifta, you'd already spent quite a bit of, of time in the industry that you came from, correct? Yeah. And, you know, I, I there was a lot of skills I was able to translate, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so uh, in the semiconductor industry, uh, I worked on many of the uh, scale-up manufacturing challenges uh, in a different context, right? Uh, so a lot of those skills are, even in the business model side, there's a lot of learnings we take from one and apply to another. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's actually a huge advantage yeah. when new people come from different backgrounds into a industry that might be very stale. They are actually sometimes the catalyst to bring about positive uh, uh, change yeah. um, and uh, new, you know, fresh ideas. Yep. So uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been, it's been wonderful making this transition. Yeah, absolutely. And I wish more people would do it. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely uh, you know it's a challenging thing to do. I think it, it can be very rewarding. Um, also, too, like just bringing over some of the skills from like one industry to another, like you'd mentioned, that that could be very very valuable. Um, like let's say for instance, even with uh, automation, a lot of people may not think about about this, but a lot of automation companies, like if you look at like total percentage uh, of uh, like, let's say at least 50%, right? 50% of automation companies are really, they're like a CNC machine shop that became an automation company, or they were a um, controls support 
type of company that turned into an automation company. And, and a lot of these, a lot of these companies, especially I see it in the CNC side of things, like that's where their roots are still really at. Like they're a, they're a CNC machining company that turned into an automation company. And even, even if they've rebranded as an automation company, they're still very much a CNC company. And a lot of the things that they're doing internally are, uh, you'll see like a lot of these companies, maybe they won't do nothing, do things with robotics. Uh, they'll, they'll, maybe they'll do stuff with servos and, and conveyors and things along those lines. But when you, when you talk about a robot, maybe they, they won't necessarily get involved in that. And, um, I think a lot of that become, comes from not, not having outside influence, right? It's because they were a CNC machine shop and they evolved into a automation company versus the, you know, I, I would assume it's probably under 20% of the automation companies out there that started and just said, I want to be an automation systems integrator. I think it's a, a very low percentage. It's more more companies that have morphed from some other type of company into automation. Yes. So this is a really good point, and there's a lot of transferable skills here. Uh, so and and I think uh, I can give a couple of examples of how if if you're a traditional CNC company, uh, you know most of them are three axis, right? Uh, just take the, the, the next logical step, go from three axis to five axis, right? Uh, there's additional complexity here, but it's a good skill to pick up. If you're a five axis, you're already doing five axis and you've kind of mastered it, right? You already halfway there to be an automation company, right? Uh, and actually, you're also there to start thinking about uh, going from subtractive manufacturing to additive manufacturing. Uh, uh, and especially, again, we like robots, so I'm, I'm really saying robotic additive manufacturing is much more exciting than traditional sort of uh, additive as we think about it. Uh, so you can see, you know, there's, there's steps you can take to sort of go up the, the stack. And these, these worlds are starting to blur, right? Uh, it's not just about subtractive or additive. It's about actually how do you combine both to achieve the outcome that you need. You know, additive is still very young, right? It's only I mean, like 2 3% of the overall manufacturing industry. It's nothing, right? It's this tiny part of that massive manufacturing industry. So there's an incredible amount of, now they're growing very fast. So that's where a lot of exciting opportunities uh, tend to be, where there is growth. Uh, so again, if you're a subtractive company, you should be looking at how do I bring in some additive capability into the mix? How do I bring in some automation into the mix? Because it's that combined solution where the advantages are going to start. So if you don't evolve, and if you only stay as a three-axis machine or CNC company, naturally you will struggle and actually it's happening i've seen so much, so many of these like mom and pop shops not able to make that transition uh, but you know my message is that it is possible uh, to do that if you kind of take this step-by-step -step approach uh, and actually right now today uh, this may not have been true two years ago three years ago but in the current environment Finally, people have woken up and they understand the importance of supply chain assurance, local manufacturing, 
uh, and, and why it's important, right? So I think it's it's actually one of the best times to be in U.S. This is, I would say, the renaissance in advanced manufacturing in the U.S., right? We had that, again, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It was great. Then we lost a huge amount of manufacturing jobs to overseas. But now they're coming back, but we don't want to bring back the old way, right? The only way we can compete globally is where we raise the bar, right? Uh, in, uh, internally at, at Orbital, this is one of our models, raise the standard, right? <laughs> so we as a country, you know, when it comes to automation and manufacturing, we need to raise our standard, uh, which means we need to train everybody. Everybody, you know, should be learning robotics. Like that, that should be a, a requirement uh, I would say even in high schools, right? High schools, community colleges, you know, four-year colleges, everybody should have access to robots. Everybody should be learning how to program them. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like the only, I think one of the only reasons that robotics hasn't had as big of an impact as like, say, for instance, something like AI is just because the uh, investment is so much higher right like if, if ai deploys tomorrow and and they charge 30 dollars a month anybody in the world can pretty much afford it and at least anybody in the us right we can, they can afford it um you know with that being said automation is slowly ticking up and taking over like it's into the future it's going to be the same as the discussions we're having with ai and how how we're talking about them taking jobs or how jobs are going to change the exact same thing's happening with automation and the discussions have been happening, but I think the technologies are getting there. And I think over the course of the next like 10 years, people are going to be start becoming educated enough uh, with things like robotics. Like, like you mentioned, like people should have more access to robotics. Well, it's definitely even since in the past, since I, you know, I was in high school, like we didn't have a robot in our high school, but I'm starting to hear of multiple like high school level classes having some type of introductory to robotics um which is going to change the landscape of of the skill level of the individuals that are coming into the industry as well as the gap closing on the technological side of of things just becoming easier to program right and and at some point in time we might be able to talk to a chat gpt and and, and have it program robot for us or program uh, some uh, plc code to do something um those things are just a matter of time it's already happening uh, and you're hitting the hitting it on the nail, right? This is the problem. Uh, if you want robotics to be accessible to the masses, to everybody, uh, it needs to be easier to program, right? And uh, the AI tools are actually going to uh, help make that transition and accelerate that transition so that, uh, you know, the barrier to entry is lower, mm -hmm. meaning that many more people can jump in mm -hmm. and start uh, make uh, becoming useful, productive with ro robots. Yeah. Now, there is always this advanced high-end sector, which is then become more specialized. Mm -hmm. But this low end is very important because this is what pulls people in. Mm -hmm. right? When people are young and they're thinking about careers, you know, it. it so my personal job, you know, my favorite class in college was where we had hardware instruments to play with, right? Yeah. So, uh, and we've shipped actually some of our systems to universities and the professors have been telling us that the interest in their classes have skyrocketed because they, 
your students get to play with actual robots, right? right? Um, so we need to sort of make this exciting, make this accessible. It's not intimidating, right? That anybody can do it, right? You can do it. You know, high school kids can do it. Uh, honestly, we've had middle school kids who can do this, right? Like right. it's it's not as intimidating as it looks. Yeah. Uh, and we need to broaden that uh, 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 pool of potential people who want to be working on this as their career. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and also too, like some of the things like collaborative robots have added like the capability of at least somebody being able to grab a hold of it and like move the robot around. Like, oh, okay, like then that kind of gets like the head nod of like, okay, maybe I can do something with this, you know? And then, go ahead, go ahead. The, the sooner somebody can, when they see the robot and they're able to go and do something with it yeah. and see something exciting, I think uh, at least for new people, that is very exciting. Yeah. So when we have people come to our lab, we have many robots in our lab, we actually give them the teach pendant and have them just move the robot. It's very simple, right? Yeah. You click a few couple of buttons, but it just, even that, the excitement on their faces is, is really wonderful to see. Yeah. Uh, even little kids, we can have them do it, right? They right. hold the pendant, <laughs> click this button, and you know, your robot is moving around, right? Yeah. And it just lowers the, the, the anxiety that, oh, I can do this. this that's not hard, right? <laughs> right? So that, I think hands-on engagement in education is really important. Yes, absolutely. Um, um, yeah. What are, what are some things that you think people should, should prepare for as they, as they kind of try to decide like what they want to do as a career? So uh, I think, you know, in the last couple of decades, uh, software was kind of king, right? Uh, people with software, I would say sort of got paid artificially high uh, uh, compared to you know people on the hardware side that actually worked incredibly hard. But I don't think the dollars <laughs> travel the, the, the mixes, yeah. the distribution is correct. Yeah. But that's starting to change, right? Because yes, software is important. Software can be enabling in many areas, but hardware matters. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, you're building, you know, we're sitting here on a computer, right? Uh, everything around us is the hardware, the monitor, the, the laptop, the chips inside, you know, uh, and there's people, you know, working on that day in and day, yeah. day out, right? Yep. To make that happen. So what's happening right now is software is kind of reaching the limit of what it can do mm. in many areas. I'm, I'm putting the AI aside, that's a different category. Mm-hmm but just kind of enterprise software in general. Yep. So, uh, and they're all reaching that maturity level where you're back to being stuck at the limitations of what your hardware can do. Yep. Um, so what I encourage people to do is, you know, I think this is actually, again, a golden period to be back on the hardware side, but you want to be well-versed on the software as well. Uh, I think diversity of knowledge is important. Uh, and there's uh, also, we've noticed people that love to work with their hands. Like they just can't stand sitting in front of a computer. And I want to say that's okay. 
don't go, uh, some people will go into this uh, programming or this kind of world just because that's the only way they think is they can money. make a living. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, so again, I think the, the balance is shifting back to not 100% hardware, but I would say you, you want a healthy mix of both hardware and software. So, so I encourage young people, you know, take classes in these different areas, expose yourself to uh, multiple things, materials, uh, you know, hardware side, you know, take physics, take math, uh, go into chemistry, broaden your scope, because a lot of the innovations are happening where a lot of these different disciplines come together. Yeah. Right. AI also alone can only do so much. At the end of the day, how do you apply it to something? Mm -hmm. Right. So this multidisciplinary uh, uh, education uh, is important. Yeah. And, uh, students should seek that as they go through their education mm -hmm. uh, uh, careers. Right. You know, yeah. seek out this diversity of uh, uh, knowledge. Yeah. Even I think that some of the schools have recognized that a little bit in the sense of like, uh, back whenever I went to college, there wasn't really many like mechatronics type of degrees. Like you kind of either went for the mechanical side of things, you know, electrical or programming side of things. And, and at the time I went to college, there was, you know, a little bit of like programming and electrical, uh, some small things. Right. But they, but still like mechatronics of like, including all these things together and how they really relate um that wasn't really there and and so like i think it's good that like now like the mechatronics degree is is starting to become more popular and more colleges are offering it because in my opinion it's one of the like best degrees you can get like at all really any sector um it's like two years of schooling and you can get a mechatronics degree now they're i'm there's some uh engineering level mechatronic type of degrees as well which was like a really really big one that i felt like was missing because i think there's a lot of people that that you know still want to go through the accolade uh you know part of education they want to get a maybe even engineering degree some just want to get a degree but like you know, they want to get an engineering degree and there hasn't really been a lot of good options but here you know in, in over the past few years uh there's been a lot more development in the you know mechatronic uh, type of like engineering degrees that are yeah. that are available. Absolutely, and I think the reason they they are interesting and exciting for people is because you're reinforcing this project based learning. Mm -hmm. Right, you're not uh, in just one discipline. Mm -hmm. You you have to cut across and make something real in the end. Yep. And to make something real, it involves many things. Yeah. by definition the other one i mean we see like aerospace engineering is very interesting because in aerospace again you are forced to think at a system level mm. which means that you need to actually learn many disciplines yeah um, i would also encourage people to do dual degrees right you can actually do a mm. major uh, let's say in uh, mechatronics and pick up minor in electrical or computer science right mm. there's there's many hybrid options and universities, again, have been open now, and they recognize this, uh, and they're broadening sort of these offerings. Yeah. Uh, so you know, pick your interest, right? Pick your, uh, you know, if you're really interested in one, go after that, but complement it with other areas, yeah. right? Uh, so I think that, again, builds broad 
set of skills. Mm-hmm. And a lot of companies, especially like in our domain as a startup, uh, you know, we like people like that. We, 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 we want more broad, people with broad backgrounds that are able to go deep as necessary, but also step back and go after something else, right? Because they have general skills in many areas uh, and, and, and they're able to be very uh, proactively, uh, they can react to whatever is required. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think one other thing to touch on too, is like just the, uh, as you are going throughout your career to, to try different things, but to also stick, stick with some things too. So like, you know, uh, I think that this is, there's like a fine line with, with that, uh, in the sense of, you know, it's like you should taste and, and, and decide what it is that you want to do. And then on the other hand, you should start building out like a, a nice discipline of like some type of skill set that you can say, I have, you know, 10 years of experience doing this. I have 15 years of experience doing this. Um, and then like, then if you want to make a hard transition to something, some other industry um, that if something happens to go wrong in that industry, you decide you don't like it and you want to go back, you can still very easily shift back to, to where, to, to the industry that you came from. And then also to add a note, but still don't let like that stop you still, still be willing to, you know, take risk and, 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 uh, you know, try things out. I would just say, be careful of trying too many things where you go through a 20 year career and, and you've, you've worked in six different industries, you know? Uh, Yeah, no, I think within industries, uh, you, you want to acquire skills. Uh, you don't want to do too many industries to industry jumps. You know, those are much more difficult. So you want to do that more sparingly, uh, more of a more strategic uh, pivot than anything else. So I have this very simple framework I've used in my entire career, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm going from one uh, position to another, and I think about uh, uh, career growth, uh, both in terms of what am I going to learn something that's new? Like, again, I actually lead with that as my first priority. Mm. What is it that I'm going to learn? Because I think people need to realize learning leads to whatever outcome. We focus too much on outcomes, but mm. if you actually focus on just the what is going to make you successful, it's the mm. learning, right? Yep. So I, if I go to a new position, I want to make sure I'm learning something new and I'm growing as a person, I'm growing as as my set of skills and capabilities. So learning is one. Second is you do want career growth, uh, but it's not an absolute must for me because I earlier I talked about sometimes you have to go down to go up again, Mm -hmm. right? That's okay. Uh, uh, But the third thing is then also, I want to make sure wherever I'm going, I can add value. Uh, and it's good to think about that, right? That uh, the right place where pe- uh, uh, people can thrive is where they're contributing because that makes you feel a valuable member of yeah. whichever group you're part of, but also you're learning at the same time. Mm-hmm. And if you can do both of those and your career trajectory is in the right place, I mean, you can't beat that, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, 
so, so that has worked wonderful for me, at least in my career. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, those are like some of the underlying things that have made me as successful as I've been in my career. Um, you know, like some of them are, are like life philosophies and some are things that I just did. But, you know, one of, one of my philosophies is, is to always add more value than anybody else around you. So if you're always trying to add the most amount of value that you can, like you can really never go wrong with that. And then uh, for myself, it was like, I'm not exactly sure what the driver was, but it was, it was opportunity. It was education. But, you know, I basically like picked up like any type of ga gap that was in the company. I came from like a somewhat smaller company. So there was like always some type of gap. Um, and, and that led me to be able to learn PLC programming, robot programming, electrical engineering, risk assessments, like all these, all these different like engineering disciplines. And, uh, you know, I would have never, you know, I would have never learned all those things if like I didn't take the like initiative to to want to learn these new things. And, and it really was like kind of to help out and fill gaps. That was one of the big things actually was like, okay, well, the company needs help in this area. I'll do it, whatever, you know, especially when it came to risk assessments. <laughs> you know, what you're describing is exactly what I was talking about, right? Because you're number one, you're useful to the company, right? Because you're, and again, it didn't matter what the gaps are in this okay. area. I'm here, I'm a team player, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to make this uh, company successful, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but the second thing is, at the same time, you're doing good for the company, you're also learning, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And, and, and that's wonderful. That's actually, people don't recognize how, see, everybody's, everybody is growing. The company is benefiting, but you're personally growing mm -hmm. and accu accumulating skill sets that are gonna serve you uh, for the rest of your career, right? And, uh, and, and, and actually, the natural outcome of those two things is that your career will progress. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like we just dropped some like very valuable nuggets of, of information. But before we get out of here today, is there any other valuable information that you'd like to share? Um, you know, I, I just want people to uh, back to my central message, right? Growth mindset. Uh, you know, we live in a challenging world. There's always it. Uh, ways to get yourself down uh, or ways to lift yourself up. And I think we as individuals, we're living the best country in the world. We have all the resources at our fingertips. We do. And, but it's about our mindset. If we start with a positive mindset, uh, we can overcome anything. And I know, you know, again, we as a country have lost so much of the manufacturing jobs over time and it's caused real pain uh, in in the, in the in lives of so many people uh, so i want to acknowledge that but i also i'm trying to say uh, this is the best time to be in manufacturing you know uh, as long as you come in with a, that fresh positive energy and perspective this is an incredible time to be in this space and uh, and I think uh, we as a country is going to thrive uh, the more we bring these jobs back and focus on our core competencies. Yeah. One other thing that I think that I don't think a lot of people are, are discussing on too much is I think one 
thing that that U.S. manufacturers are going to have as a as a, a positive as a pro is because of of COVID, because of remote working. One thing that I'm I'm definitely predicting and seeing is that over it may it may take ten to twenty years, but I think we're going to start to see more of a balance in labor rates. So yes. whereas like we're outsourcing a lot of things to, to Mexico and India and China and, and for, for like low labor rates, right? That's, a, that's the fact of why they're getting outsourced to these other countries. I think that the, the gap is going to, to close some because it's going to start with some of your skilled jobs, uh, maybe, maybe creators, video editors, things like that, where, you know, um, there, there's going to be companies that are sourcing people from all over the world. You know, it's been happening for some time, but I don't think it's been globally done and been done by mass majority of companies. But with, you know, this new remote working culture that, that is, uh, you know, kind of came to with COVID, um, I think it's definitely going to kind of change the landscape of, of, you know, what, what pay rates look like and, um, and kind of how we how we function as like a, a global economy. Yeah, we want to upskill, right? Raise the standard. We want everybody here to raise their skills. Uh, and then uh, there's a wonderful example. Like if you go to Denmark, and I had the privilege to go there a few times. Uh, the amount of automation in Denmark is remarkable. There's even a, a city called Odense. Uh, which has the highest concentration of robotic companies. And it's a tiny city of 200,000 people. Mm. And, but why are they so good? It's a country of, I think their population is like less than 5 million people. It's tiny, tiny. I mean, that's it, nothing, right? Yep. So by necessity, yeah, and they have, you know, many months of winter, right? Which is, you know, parts of the U.S. is true, right? So, what do they do? They automate the hell out of everything. Mm -hmm. Everything is automated. You you come out, of, you know, come through the airport. You, there's robots running around everywhere. Mm -hmm. The moment we step out of the airport, the lawns are perfect because there's robots running around mowing, mowing the lawns. Right? Like everything is automated mm -hmm. now because they upskilled, right? Now they become the net exporters of those technologies. To the rest of the world right this is how you uh, build a high value economy mm. right we want to be net exporters of these highly skilled yeah. capabilities and technologies mm. that's where you know that's the only way we can compete right you cannot compete at a human uh, capacity level we just don't have the enough people even if us doubled its population you still can't compete Right. Triple, you still can't compete, right? So the only way is we have to raise the standard, upskill, and uh, and that's when, uh, as a country, we can keep that competitive edge. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you for being with us today. Where can people find you at? Uh, we're based in Silicon Valley in a town called Campbell. Uh, we're about a, a walking distance block away from Netflix headquarters. <laughs> if that helps. Uh, but uh, uh, go to orbitalcomposites.com or send me an email directly, amolak, A-M-O-L-A-K, at orbitalcomposites.com. Uh, and if you are into robotics uh, and uh, additive manufacturing uh, composites, reach out. We are one of the best in the world. Awesome.
thank you again for being with us today and, and thank you for for drop dropping the value bombs Thank you, and thank you for the invite. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I would love to come see you sometime. Uh, uh, you're based in Indiana, right? Yep, Southern Indiana. Okay, I will. Next time I'm in Indiana, I'll reach out. Good deal. Are you going to automate? <laughs> will you be at automate? Uh, one of our team members might be. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think I will be there. Uh, okay. We have so many conferences ongoing. Yeah. All right. Uh, but uh, if you're in Silicon Valley, uh, shoot me a note. Come over. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, thank you. All right, bye.